Hello and welcome to the Annals of Internal Medicine podcast. I'm Dr. Christine Lane, Annals Editor-in-Chief, and I'm here to give you a quick overview of what's new in Annals over the two weeks since our last podcast. I hope everyone listening is staying well during the very challenging times we are living through. Depending on where you're listening from, it's four to six months since the COVID-19 pandemic began. And if you live in the United States, it has been about four weeks since George Floyd suffered a horrific and unjust death at the hands of law enforcement, prompting a justified uprising of Americans against racism, discrimination, and use of unnecessary force by police. I'll begin this podcast with a History of Medicine article that marries the issues of pandemics and racism. The article, titled Historical Insights on COVID-19, the 1918 Influenza Pandemic and Racial Disparities, Illuminating a Path Forward, is authored by Lakshmi Krishnan, Michelle Angamol, and Lisa Cooper of Johns Hopkins University. The COVID-19 pandemic is exacting a disproportionate toll on ethnic minority communities, magnifying existing disparities in healthcare access and treatment. To help understand the current crisis, the authors look to history for insights, especially the 1918 influenza pandemic. They examine the historical arc of the 1918 influenza pandemic, focusing on Black Americans, and shed light on the complex and sometimes unexpected ways it operated, triggering particular responses both within a minority community and in wider racial, sociopolitical, and public health structures. Their analysis reveals that critical structural inequities have historically contributed to and continue to compound disparate health outcomes among communities of color. Shifting from this context to the present, this article frames a discussion of racial health disparities through a resilience model and proposes that we approach the COVID-19 crisis and its aftermath through the lens of health equity. Please go to annals.org to read this article. It's about as timely as a history article can be. Next is a commentary by a group of American College of Physicians leaders who reflect on the COVID-19 pandemic and the policy recommendations outlined in the organization's policy papers published in a special supplement to Annals in January of this year titled, Better as Possible, the American College of Physicians' Vision for the U.S. Healthcare System. The authors believe that the COVID-19 pandemic underscores the need for improving access to care for all Americans, as universal coverage would help millions of uninsured Americans and provide a safety net for those facing financial burden. And of particular relevance right now, the current pandemic has also demonstrated how factors of race and ethnicity are contributing to an inequitable healthcare system, resulting in poor outcomes for disadvantaged populations. Go to annals.org to read the commentary and also the policy papers if you missed them in January. SARS-CoV-2 has spread rapidly throughout the world. Infected persons who remain asymptomatic may play a role in the ongoing pandemic, but their relative number and effect have been uncertain. Researchers from Scripps Research Translational Institute reviewed the available evidence on asymptomatic SARS-CoV-2 infection and found asymptomatic persons could account for up to about 40% of infections. And because it seems that they can transmit the virus to others despite having no symptoms, the authors believe that it is imperative that testing programs include those without symptoms. The available data are limited by factors such as their cross-sectional nature, 
inconsistent definitions of asymptomatic and the lack of clarity between being truly asymptomatic, meaning patients who never develop symptoms, and pre-symptomatic, meaning a person had no symptoms when they tested positive but later became symptomatic. The coronavirus disease 2019 pandemic has challenged all of medicine. However, in recent weeks, the nation's need for more infectious disease expertise has become a clear focal point. Cognitive specialties such as infectious diseases have attracted fewer physicians to the field than other high-income generating specialties. Authors from Massachusetts General Hospital and Leahy Hospital Medical Center examined whether the distribution of infectious disease specialists matches the needs of the COVID-19 pandemic across the U.S., they found that nearly two-thirds of all Americans live in 90% of counties with below average or no access to infectious disease specialists. Accurate serologic tests to detect host antibodies to SARS-CoV-2 will be critical for the public health response to the COVID-19 pandemic. As such, urgent research is needed to link specific serologic variables with immunity against SARS-CoV-2. Researchers led by a team at McGill University reviewed available research to identify key use cases for SARS-CoV-2 antibody detection tests and their application to serologic studies. They discuss currently available assays, highlight key areas of ongoing research, and propose potential strategies for test implementation. They found that despite a rapid increase in the number and availability of serologic assays to test for antibodies against SARS-CoV-2, most have undergone minimal or no external validation or have poorly described validation panels, which hinders assay selection and interpretation of results. In addition, interpretation of serologic assays is limited at present because of critical knowledge gaps. There is much that we do not yet know about serologic tests and their clinical implications, but this review provides a concise summary of what we know to date. On April 26, after spending weeks caring for patients with COVID-19 in New York City, emergency room physician Lorna Breen took her own life. Her grieving family recounted days of helplessness leading up to this as Dr. Breen described how COVID-19 upended her emergency department and left her feeling inadequate despite years of training and expertise. In a commentary published online on June 9th, authors from Harvard Medical School and Dana-Farber Cancer Institute described targeted actions that might help during the COVID-19 pandemic to prevent a mental health crisis among overextended and stressed essential workers. In the next article, authors from University of Washington and Fred Hutchinson Cancer Center say that broader use of outcome-adaptive randomization when designing clinical trials is especially appropriate to test multiple COVID-19 interventions. This design could reduce the number of adverse outcomes incurred during a trial. They argue that if interventions are tested separately over the next few months, additional time will be required to conduct direct comparisons of the most effective treatments. A collaborative effort will help clinicians to widely implement the most effective treatments as quickly as possible and with potentially more persons receiving the most effective treatments. To learn more about adaptive randomized trials, go to annals.org and read this commentary. In a podcast episode released on June 5th, Dr. Bob Center discusses disparities in the COVID-19 pandemic with Dr. Utibi Essien, the director of the Center for Health Equity Research and Promotion at University of Pittsburgh. 
You can access the podcast by going to the multimedia section on annals.org or using your favorite podcast aggregator. Just search for Annals on Call. The Women's Preventive Services Initiative, a national coalition of women's health professional organizations and patient representatives, recommends screening for anxiety in women and adolescent girls 13 years or older, including pregnant and postpartum women. Screening involves completing a brief clinician or self-administered questionnaire that describes symptoms of anxiety. Optimal screening intervals are unknown, and clinical judgment should be used to determine the frequency. Given the high prevalence of anxiety disorders, lack of recognition in clinical practice, and multiple problems associated with untreated anxiety, clinicians should consider screening women who have not been recently screened. The recommendation was adopted by the Health Resources and Service Administration and will be incorporated into the Summary of Covered Benefits for Preventive Services without cost sharing as required by the Patient Protection and Affordable Care Act. Both the guidelines and the systematic review of the evidence are published in Annals of Internal Medicine. The authors of an accompanying editorial from Yale University School of Medicine suggest that these recommendations are a great start, but issues need to be addressed to ensure these recommendations can be implemented in clinical practice. In addition, they suggest that it is worth considering why anxiety is so prevalent and what can be done from a public health perspective to prevent it. The next article shows that filling an opioid prescription during the postpartum period is strongly associated with overdose and other serious opioid-related events. The risk increased with the number of prescriptions filled and did not seem to differ substantially by route of delivery. Researchers from Vanderbilt University Medical Center studied 161,318 women aged 15 to 44 years enrolled in Tennessee Medicaid who were discharged after childbirth between January 2007 and August 2014 to assess the risk for severe opioid-related events associated with postpartum opioid prescribing after childbirth, including both vaginal and cesarean births. They found that routine prescribing after vaginal birth was common in Tennessee, with 59% of vaginal births and 91% of cesarean births filling one or more opioid prescription in the postpartum period. A second postpartum opioid prescription was filled by about 11% of vaginal births and 24% of cesarean births. Severe opioid-related events were identified in 4,582 women and included persistent opioid use, substance use disorder, buprenorphine or methadone prescriptions, overdose, and opioid-related death. The data showed that covariate-adjusted serious event rates increased with increasing number of postpartum opioid prescriptions. Current clinical guidelines do not provide specific recommendations for opioid prescribing after childbirth. According to the researchers, these findings suggest that design and implementation of rational opioid prescribing guidelines would be an opportunity to reduce this risk among postpartum women. An estimated one quarter of the global population has latent tuberculosis infection. If left untreated, 10% of these 1.7 billion people will develop tuberculosis. Latent tuberculosis infection treatment is not new. Monotherapy with isoniazide for six to 12 months has been long proven to reduce the risk for developing active tuberculosis by up to 90%. However, the long treatment duration and the fear of serious, even fatal adverse events have limited acceptance and completion of this therapy. 
Researchers from McGill University studied data from two multi-center randomized clinical trials conducted in adults and children with risk factors for developing tuberculosis. They compared healthcare use and associated cost of treatment with four months of rifampin and nine months of isoniazide in these studies. The analyses indicated that latent tuberculosis infection treatment with four months of rifampin resulted in less health service use and significantly lower cost than nine months of isoniazide for both adults and children. These trials included participants from diverse treatment settings in nine countries. According to the researchers, these findings suggest that tuberculosis programs in all countries should consider adoption of the four-month rifampin regimen as first-line therapy for latent tuberculosis. Next is a case report that demonstrates that cannabis use was associated with improved blood pressure stability by reducing triggers of autonomic dysreflexia in a patient with spinal cord injury. Autonomic dysreflexia, a condition that emerges after spinal cord injury, causes high blood pressure, pounding headache, flushed face, and sweating, among other troublesome symptoms. Episodes can be severe enough to cause life-threatening medical emergencies. Current pharmacologic approaches to treating autonomic dysreflexia are often expensive and ineffective. Researchers from the University of British Columbia report the case of a 41-year-old patient with a C5 spinal cord injury who had been self-managing his autonomic dysreflexia symptoms with daily cannabis use for the past 13 years. The patient reported using a vaporizer through the day to inhale about 100 milligrams of cannabis concentrate that contained 20% THC. He also consumed two to three edibles per day that contained approximately 2,000 to 2,500 milligrams of THC. The researchers monitored his blood pressure using a 24-hour home blood pressure monitor to document the effect. They found that his blood pressure stability was worse on days when he did not use cannabis and better on days when he did. Further, the cannabis use reduced the frequency of autonomic dysreflexia by 135% and its severity by 43%. These findings suggest that cannabis may be an effective way to manage autonomic dysreflexia. Also published online on June 16th is a commentary on increasing the safety of blood transfusion in low-resource countries and this month's inpatient notes commentary, which addresses whether and when to stop anticoagulants in patients who present to the hospital on anticoagulation for prior venous thromboembolism. And this month, the consult guides discuss whether to electively replace a 93-year-old patient's hip. We also published two on being a doctor essays, one on caring for refugees and the other on facing death during the pandemic, and there are several new graphic medicine articles. That brings me to the end of this podcast. I hope you will take some time to go to annals.org to take a look at some of the new material I've mentioned and return in two weeks for our next podcast. In the meantime, I hope that you stay well. Remember to reach out to colleagues to see how they are doing. We're all in this pandemic together, and together we will get through it. Thanks to Beth Jenkinson and Andrew Langman for their technical support.